My name is Paul Riley, also known as Political Paul, and this is The Riley Rant, a weekly podcast where we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. Let's rant. Thanks for tuning in to the 36th official episode of The Riley Rant. As was noted in the intro, we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. And if you've been following us, you know that our rants oftentimes have what I like to call a hybrid between the two topics. So there are some rants that are solely focused on the political. There are some that's solely focused on the personal. But then at other times, I have rants that are actually a hybrid or a merging of two or three of the categories. So my most recent rant was a hybrid between the political and the personal where we discussed Kanye West and this idea of what it means to be a free thinker. The rant before that, we focused on the political, looking at gun reform and the best path forward. And this week, I want to, again, merge the themes of this rant to have them centered on the political and the personal. And more specifically, I want to look at how we can go about and think about creating a more just society. This topic has come up for me and it's been likely top of mind for all of you listening as we see so many events unfold Um, in the United States and around the world. We saw with immigration at the southern border, families being torn apart, horrific audio coming out of the quote-unquote detention centers, documenting the experiences of the youth who've been separated from their parents with no understanding or reason as to why, and dealing with what many child psychologists are calling trauma. But then we also have had stories emerge on Twitter and across social media and our news of people of color having crazy interactions with other individuals, non-people of color oftentimes, calling the police for mowing a lawn or for uh, selling um, lemonade or tea or for barbecuing most recently in Oakland. And we see how our society still has a long way to go in becoming more just and creating just policies and ensuring that everyone is able to live a life filled with liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And so I want to devote this rant, this 36 rant, to looking at the political and the personal, and more importantly, to dissecting how we as listeners can come together to really transform our society to make it more just and equitable for all. So when thinking about a just society, I'm actually taken back to my time in college. For those of you who know me, you know that I study politics. And in my political science department, we actually had a a few different focus areas. So you could do like I did and focus in American politics. But regardless of your focus, you actually had to take courses in some of the other verticals within the broader politics department. And so while, again, my focus is on American politics, we had other verticals focused on international relations, focused on political theory. You could also do sort of a minor in political economy. And so as I was trying to fulfill my requirements, I came across a political theory course that was sort of an intro course to get your feet wet into political theory, uh, listening to and you know reading the works of Locke and uh, de Tocqueville and others who really laid a, a foundation for how we ought to think about democracy, formation of society, rights, and things of that sort. But while I was taking this required course, I actually came across a philosopher and a principle that's really resonated with me and that stayed with me uh, since I've graduated and really been functioning in the, the real world with the desire to ultimately get involved in politics, where the crux of that role is sort of fighting for justice and fairness in policies and in practices at the highest levels of government. And so in this class, 
we were exposed to a philosopher named John Rawls. And John Rawls uh, is notable within the, the political theory community, if you will. Um, and he wrote a book in 1971 entitled The Theory of Justice. And in this book, The Theory of Justice, he actually coins a term that is rather influential and, and popular in political theory courses, especially when thinking about how to craft and how to create a just society. And in this book, again, The Theory of Justice, the title, he walks us through his own theory on how we can create uh, a just and fair society where everyone is protected and able to sort of live out um, their lives without fear of retribution for having certain characteristics that make them who they are. And he coins this term as uh, the veil of ignorance. And he notes that the veil of ignorance is a situation and a dynamic where you're in an original position trying to create a society. And behind the veil of ignorance, no one knows who they are. They lack clues as to their class, their privilege, their disadvantages, or even their personality. They exist as an impartial group tasked with designing a new society with its own conception of justice. And that was taken from the Farnham Street blog entitled, The Fairness Principle, How the Veil of Ignorance Helps Test Fairness. And that blog post is one that I'm going to leverage throughout this rant to really educate you on what the veil of ignorance is, so that with that understanding, we can really, again, take action and really living out in our own way how we're going to help America become the country that it should have been years ago and that it can be if we all come together to collectively use our voices and our actions to make that a reality. But the Farnham Street blog goes on to say, because people behind the veil of ignorance do not know who they will be in this new society, any choice they make in structuring that society could either harm or benefit them. So, for example, if they decide that men will be superior, for example, they must face the risk that they will be women. If they decide that 10% of the population will be slaves to others, they cannot be surprised if they find themselves to be slaves. No one wants to be a part of a disadvantaged group, so the logical belief is that the veil of ignorance would produce a fair and egalitarian society. The author of the blog post then goes on to give some real-life examples. And they note, One way to understand the veil of ignorance is to imagine that you are tasked with cutting a pizza to share with your friends and you will be the last person to take a slice of the pizza. Being a rational person of a sound mind, you want to get the largest possible share, and the only way to ensure this is to make sure that all the slices are the same size. Alternatively, you could opt to cut one huge slice for yourself and a few tiny slices for your friends, but one of them might take the large slice and leave you the meager one, again because you are the last one to sort of pick up the slice of pizza. And so they argue that if you're tasked with cutting this pizza and you're the last one, you're going to try to make the cuts of the pizza as equal and fair as possible because you know that you're going to be the last one to get a piece. And if you're hungry like the rest of the group is, you want to get just as much and you don't want to risk creating a large piece at the expense of and likelihood of you getting a smaller piece of the pie. Another example that the author uses is talking about their children. Uh, they know when my kids are fighting over the last cookie, which happens more often than you'd imagine, I ask them to determine who will split the cookie the other person picks. This is the old playground rule, you split, I pick. Without this rule, one of them would surely give the other a smaller portion. With it, the halves are as equal as they would be with sensible adults. And so when thinking about the veil of ignorance, it comes down to crafting a position that will give you the best advantage possible without understanding where you will end up in society. And when we look at examples, whether it be cutting a slice of pizza or splitting a cookie, oftentimes when you are the last person receiving the benefit, 
you don't know how it's exactly going to play out, you actually have an incentive to create a fair and equitable cut of the pizza or the cookie so that you are not left stranded with a meager, measly piece, but that you have just as much as everyone else. And when we think about society, that's really what we want. And when you look at history from the Constitution to uh, the Civil War to Reconstruction to post-Reconstruction to the Civil Rights Movement to the Voting Rights Movement to the Me Too Movement to the Black Lives Matter Movement to the uh, immigrants' rights movements throughout history, what you're seeing and what you're finding is a desire for people to get their fair share of the pie, to get their fair share of opportunity and access, to get their fair share of humanity uh, that's been stripped from them for so long. And that's what is required for us to create a just society. It essentially boils down to us realizing that we have to start taking into account how others are impacted by our decisions. And the only way that we can do that is by stepping outside of ourselves to see how the experiences of others are not that far removed from us and that our inability to acknowledge that we are just as likely to end up in the predicament of the individuals that we silently watch suffer are is not as far as removed as you would like to think. And so when thinking about this application in real life, Farnham Street Blog notes, when considering whether we should endorse a proposed law or policy, we can ask, if I did not know if this would affect me or not, would I still support it? Those who make big decisions that shape the lives of large members of people are almost always those in positions of power. And those in positions of power are almost always members of privileged groups. As Benjamin Franklin once wrote, justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. And so that's the crux of the veil of ignorance. It was a concept that I came across in college, taking an intro to political theory course. But it is one that has stayed with me because though it's not perfect in that we can't ever return to a state where we don't know where we exist in society, it is a great framework for us to think about how we can really test the fairness of certain laws and practices and principles that we see in society. And it begins to force you to ask some very tough, very real questions. Like if you were operating behind the veil of ignorance, would you really sign up to be in a society where the top 1% controls over 40% of the nation's wealth? Would you like those odds behind the original position sitting behind the veil of ignorance? Or if you realize that minorities, particularly black and Hispanic groups, are overrepresented in the prison system, would you feel that that was just behind the veil of ignorance and would you accept that type of dynamic that type of statistic if you had no knowledge of where you would end up in society it requires us as i've said throughout this rant to really step outside of ourselves to really see how the policies and the actions and the orders and the mandates that are coming down not only from government but in our communities and our private actions how they impact others if we really step back and really looked at how that affects others. And if we got this notion out of our mind that these issues don't affect us, that they're far removed from us, I think that that is where we can really start to see some of the change that we want to be and that we want America to realize in the years to come. And so when thinking about this veil of ignorance, I love to always acknowledge critiques of it. You get a lot of people you know, challenging this idea that, well, firstly, the veil of ignorance fails to really become embedded in reality. And it fails to become embedded in reality primarily because it doesn't ever speak about race 
or about the prevalence of discrimination in society. And this is a broader critique of political theory more broadly, that these individuals, these theorists, like John Rawls and others, are oftentimes operating in this idealized world that's removed from reality that oftentimes makes it difficult for people to really see how this concept could actually be applicable to life and to the real world. But Harold Lloyd wrote in the Huffington Post a defense of this idea uh, that the veil of ignorance actually does exist in real life. So those who critique it and say this has no bearing on our lives, this is some idealized world where we can magically go behind a veil and not know where we'll stand, it's so far-fetched, therefore this theory should be removed and debunked. And Harold Lloyd, in his piece in the Huffington Post, actually challenges this assumption. He notes, even if our hearts keep beating, how can we otherwise know our physical and social status beyond the present moment? How can we know that we won't suddenly become ill or uninsurable in a purely capitalistic market? How can we know that evidence will not present itself at some point that we are not who we think we are, racially or otherwise? How can we know that our religious beliefs will not change? How can we know that we will not be disabled tomorrow and suddenly be classified as a cripple? Along the lines of Rawls, it's hard to see how this does not lead a rational person to want to hedge his or her bets with principles of fair and concerned treatment. Would he or she not want equal protection and due process under the law if they are unfairly accused of something heinous or if they have an accident that was not their fault? Would they not want such protections for their children and grandchildren as well should they suffer the same misfortune? Would they not want an insurance market that would embrace them if they suddenly became ill? What good would it be to have amassed a fortune if they must quickly dissipate it due to illness? Worse, would he or she want to die? simply because they run out of money to buy their prescriptions in a society which can afford to help her. Moreover, would she not want such protections for her presently healthy children and grandchildren as well, should they suffer the same misfortune? The author notes, I could go on and on and on, but the point should be plain by now. The veil of ignorance exists, and it drives rational people to value, among other things, fairness and concern for more than just themselves in the present state and those presently like them. Whether liberal or conservative, a rational person who admits the veil of ignorance understands the importance of fairness and of general concern for the welfare of not only him or herself, but of others who differ from his present status and characteristics. This includes acknowledging the fragility of life and the need to protect it when it cannot protect itself. Whether liberal or conservative, a rational person who is aware of the veil of ignorance understands that we all can in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, become the fragile life that only survives with others' help. Rational liberals and conservatives aware of the veil of ignorance therefore want the fairness and compassion discussed throughout this rant. This, of course, brings the author back to where he began, where he notes a reasonable person and reasonable people of all political persuasions, can come together on much if they will just admit one thing, the veil of ignorance exists. And so I really love what Harold Lloyd outlines here. It's this idea that the veil of ignorance, though idealized in a world of political theory behind an original position where we don't know where we stand, while that seems so far-fetched and removed, in reality, we actually can recreate the veil when we look at our current life experiences, when we look at the fact that we only know 
our standing in our state and society at the present moment. We have no clarity or awareness as to what will happen or how our life will unfold over the next few weeks, over the next few months, and over the next few years. And that lack of clarity and awareness on where we will end up is frightening, but should also compel us to view life behind a veil of ignorance that says, if I don't know where I'm going to end up, I best be sure to fight for equality and justice for all so that no matter what predicament I end up in down the road, whether I go from being the richest person to the poorest, whether I go from being the healthiest person to someone afflicted with diseases or pre-existing conditions that are passed down through genetics, whatever it may be, this awareness that life is so fragile and that things can change in an instant should compel us all to realize that the injustice that we see today in society is not that other person's problem, but that it could very well be ours if we don't stand up and fight. And so when we think about voting rights and how people across the country are getting their, their voting rights stripped away right before the midterms, we should be outraged. When we see at the southern border young children, toddlers, being stripped away from their parents and audio capturing the horrific sounds of children screaming, we should be outraged. When we hear about the crazy, ridiculous, out-of-pocket stories of the Me Too movement and how so many knew for so long and no one took the action to stand up out of fear, we have to say enough is enough. We have to realize that in all of these issues, the realities that these individuals are experiencing are not so far removed from us. A prime example for me is looking at the Me Too movement and how we often try to categorize and classify this movement as a woman's issue. Um, that a woman faced this when they're um, in Hollywood and in corporate America and on the casting call couch, wherever it may be. And while that is true and while that is worth acknowledging, having that type of mindset that this only affects this group of people and I am not affected would allow me to sort of remain silent and complicit. But I direct you to Exhibit A, Terry Crews, a black man of a tall stature where stereotypes would lead you to believe that he would never find himself due to his sheer strength, again, those stereotypes, and his facade and physique, that he would never, ever find himself in a predicament uh, where he's saying me too, where he's speaking out as someone who has been assaulted in a public setting. We would never really expect that, and our inability to see the Terry Cruises in this movement may lead some like me to believe that I have no vested interest in this because it doesn't affect me. But his story and so many others reveal that this belief that this will never impact you because of what stereotypes have told you about your race or your physique or your size, that those things have to be sort of removed from your conscience to say, no matter what the issue may be, there is no guarantee that I won't come across those very same circumstances. And the onus should be on me to speak up before it impacts me so that I can ensure that we fight to create a more inclusive and just and fair and equitable society. And to really reiterate this point that these issues aren't as far removed from you as you would like to think, I direct you to, in adding to this idea and this thought that we can't continue to believe that we're removed from this or that these issues are someone else's problems, I turn you to Martin Niemöller. Martin Niemöller, as highlighted in the Holocaust Encyclopedia, was a prominent Protestant pastor who emerged as an outspoken public foe of Adolf Hitler and spent the last seven years of Nazi rule in concentration camps. He lived from 1892 to 1984 and is perhaps best known for a poem that he wrote um, documenting uh, the troubles that come with remaining silent and complicit and not speaking up. He notes, first they came for the socialists, 
and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. And this quote from Niemöller actually is a critique of Germans, particularly leaders of the Protestant churches, who he felt had been complicit through their silence in the Nazi imprisonment, persecution, and murder of millions of people. And this critique was centered on this idea that these individuals saw what was happening around them, and they did not speak up. They remained silent, maybe out of a fear that this didn't relate to them, maybe out of a fear that this was far removed from their current reality. But I feel that this complicit nature and this silence is actually prevalent in this day and age where we see what is happening in our society, we see what is happening in our country, and for some reason, whether it's through fatigue or just being inundated with stories day after day after day, that we ultimately become silent on the issues that matter most. That we ultimately view this immigration issue as solely related to those at the southern border of Mexican descent, of Latin America and South America, that it has no impact on me or my family, without realizing, for example, that this immigration debacle impacts all. It impacts immigrants of African descent. It impacts everyone. And so as we begin to look at these issues on a case-by-case basis, it's my hope that you'll see that they're not just confined to the group that's getting the most coverage, but that they're actually confined to and impact a broader group of people. And that broader group of people impacted by these different policies may actually be more similar to you and more closer to your predicament and your lifestyle than you imagine. But beyond it relating solely to you, the onus is on all of us to really step outside of ourselves. And I know it's so hard because psychology tells us that we think that we are God's gift to earth. We think that we're better looking, we're better drivers, we're better this, we're better that. That we become so consumed with me, 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 that we never look outward to say, what is going on in the world around me? What do I have a problem with? What needs to be changed? And how am I going to go about playing my part? How am I going to push past the nature of so many to remain complicit and silent as I see these horrific actions take place all around me. I believe that there is power in few. I believe that there is power in a collective few coming together and saying enough is enough. And I hope that you will, in the smallest ways that you can, find ways to speak up and to speak out as when it may be you who was impacted by a policy, that there will be others who can speak up for you and stand with you because you stood up and spoke up for them in their time of need. Thank you so much for tuning in to this 36th rant focused on a hybrid between the political and the personal and a topic centered around how we create a more just society. These issues are not as far removed from any one of us as we like to think. And for those reasons, we should have some fire under us that says, no longer will I remain silent. No longer will I remain complicit. I will stand up. I will speak up. I will fight for what is right. I will fight for what is just because human lives depend on it. Remember, if it's Sunday, it's time to rant. If it's Sunday, it's the Riley Rant.